The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. There was a massive psychological change that I observed in Donetsk. It wasn't that they were scared that the same thing would happen to them. It was more like a kind of a moral outrage. They were looking for evidence that there really were fascists. When Ukraine pulled itself apart in 2014, the world was confused over who exactly was doing the pulling. Was the takeover of Luhansk, Donetsk, and other regional capitals all part of a Russian plan, or just a local movement? Today, on a special edition of War College, we speak with Antony Butts. He was in Donetsk when it all went down, and has a very interesting take on exactly what happened. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to a special edition of War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor Jason Fields, and today I'm joined by Tom Barton of Reuters Moscow Bureau. And Tom is also going to introduce our guest. So would you be so kind? Of course. Anthony Butts is an independent journalist and documentary maker specialising in assignments in the former Soviet Union. He's covered the effects of Soviet nuclear testing in Kazakhstan, the disaster of Hurricane Haiyan in the Philippines, and has spent weeks filming inside the separatist-declared Donetsk People's Republic in eastern Ukraine. His documentary on the subject, DIY Country, is going to be shown by the French TV channel Arte and also screened at the Hot Docs Film Festival in Toronto between April the 28th and May the 8th. Anthony, welcome. Uh, welcome. Thank you for having me here. If we could just start with Donetsk, when were you there filming? So I turned up in Donetsk about 10 days after they'd um, captured the administration building in Donetsk. I think that that was um, uh, beginning of April 2014. And this was after Russia had already taken over Crimea, right? Yeah, I mean, th things were moving very fast at that point. There'd been, obviously, the revolution in Kiev uh, two months before, and then Russia had invaded Crimea uh, shortly after that, sort of spearheaded by its sort of special forces taking over buildings, uh, pretending to be locals. And then, you know, it seemed like a similar kind of thing was going down in the sort of Donbass at that period of time, you know, buildings sort of falling to... Uh, you know, mixed bag of uh, soldiers, soldier types and, uh, and locals. And when I sort of turned up in the region, I went to Slavyansk first and filming there was impossible. It was just far too dangerous. But then Donetsk was taken over and that, that seemed to be a sort of a, a different kettle of fish. It was almost like an entirely separate project. The building wasn't taken over by uh, gunmen uh, like elsewhere. It was taken over by um, uh, local activists. And that was kind of very interesting because it was far more open. It seemed a, a kind of a, a different project, kind of put the civilian face on things. And it was very difficult to disaggregate whether it was really a, uh, planned by Russia or was something kind of like very freewheeling and, and fluid from the grassroots uh, pro-Russian movement. Can you just describe Donetsk to uh, us? How many people live there? Russian speaking, I assume? Yeah, so um, Donetsk is the, uh, the capital of Donbass, which is the sort of eastern Ukrainian region. It's sort of famous for its uh, coal and uh, industry. 
just under a, a million people live there. It's almost entirely Russian speaking. It doesn't necessarily mean what people's sympathies are. My guess is that people were wanting to return to the Soviet Union. Donetsk was kind of quite empty until the Soviet Union came along. And they sort of just uh, obviously used it as a big industrial power base, and lots of mines, lots of smelters and, and stuff like that. So pe- people had this sort of very kind of like uh, industrial, um, you know, stereotypical worker identity. Uh, suddenly, you know, 23 years ago, they find themselves part of Ukraine. And this really leaves the, the people quite lost at sea. Some of them uh, take up the Ukrainian identity, some of them the Russian identity, but most of them still feel in, in the Soviet Union. And over those years, Ukraine didn't really serve these people very well because of the corruption. The oligarchs took over all the mines and industry, milked them for all its worth, left it in ruins. And so people were kind of very bitter at what independence had done for them because of the oligarchy. And they saw the Soviet Union as, you know, better times. And simply because Russia, under Putin, it's kind of making itself out like it owns the Soviet Union brand. So people associated Russia's sort of oil wealth and so on with the Soviet Union brand and thought that somehow joining Russia, being part of Russia, is going to make their lives better. Russia is going to bring back the Soviet Union. It's going to give them some of that nice oil wealth and restart their industry. Whereas they felt that Ukraine, with its pro-Western stance and um, association with the IMF and sort of structural adjustment programs and all, all that stuff, was just going to leave the whole uh, region much worse off than it was even back then. Their identity was very fluid. It's uh, Do you perhaps feel that, uh, obviously, the the big question that the the world asks is about Russian involvement? And obviously, Russia continues to deny that it it ever had its actual official forces there in eastern Ukraine. But do you feel that without whoever these mysterious uh, people that were coming and, and helping the local rebels, do you feel that if they hadn't stepped in, and many people assume they are Russian, they were Russian, that the local uh, elites or groups simply didn't have the organisation, the skill to pull it off, and the whole thing was going to collapse unless there was outside help. Is is that a picture that you saw that stood up uh, by the evidence? I, I, I think that Russia was involved somehow, but I don't think it was as direct as um, as everyone's thinking. I think it's more, at least at least in Donetsk, I think somebody was behind the scenes in placing Pushil in there. But I have a feeling that that was done through oligarchs. And who told the oligarchs to do that? Who get who put them up to it? I don't know. Um, but Russia did play a vital role psychologically, which is the most important thing. Uh, Russia had moved its army to within... Uh, to within um, you know, the borders of, of Kharkov and Donetsk uh, area. So it could have invaded at any time and the Ukrainian army would have been completely flattened. So people really felt that Russia was behind them. The Crimean precedent also gave people the, the idea that uh, whatever they do, they're doing so with relative uh, impunity because, as in, they can rebel because no one's going to stop them. The police, who could have put down the uprising in Donetsk relatively easily, just did nothing. There were guys with knives, uh, holding knives in their hands, and policemen um, w- w- would not do anything. Uh, and they, these guys were just walking around the streets. The, and I spoke to the police, and they said they were just waiting to see who would win. 
So if the police had been confident that that they would be punished if they by the Ukrainian government if they uh, weren't neutral, I think things would be very different. And that is down to the threat of Russia in that in, in creating this atmosphere of impunity. In addition, Russia also had a very important role in the formation of the identity uh, and steering the identity of the republic. In Donetsk, it was initially a, mostly a working class uh, revolution. People who were in the mines, in the factories, who felt they would got nothing out of Ukraine because of the corruption and oligarchy of all these years, saw in this revolution a chance to upend things and sort of seize control. This was very quickly steered by the Russian media into a uprising against fascism, not against oligarchs, because of course Russia doesn't want to have, a, my theory is that Russia doesn't want to have a working class revolution uh, in its backyard, right? So it wanted to use the mobilization that, that sort of the, all these um, angry miners uh, had sort of brought about and turn it into that these miners had risen up spontaneously to uh, fight fascism. This was a sort of a very important thing because when uh, Odessa happened, when uh, something like 30, 40 people were uh, Pro-Russians were killed in a um, an arson attack in Odessa. There was a massive psychological change uh, that I observed in Donetsk. It really was like night and day. The le- people really felt their identity was under threat. The people who had stood up for the referendum in Odessa, like like they were standing up for a referendum in Donetsk, they had just been. Um, uh, but do, do you know what I mean? It was. Um, it wasn't that they were scared that the same thing would happen to them. It, it wasn't that. It was more like a kind of a moral outrage backed by the fact that they could get away with it. So they, they, they could like let loose their feelings. It was, it was, they were looking for evidence that there really were fascists. And Russian TV spun the, uh, what happened in Odessa so much so that it, it looked like um, on TV a as if uh, Ukrainian government-backed neo-Nazis had uh, incinerated uh, 35 pregnant women. Uh, and that's what people were telling me in, um, in the administration building. And that they felt that this was like proof positive, that there really were fascists. And after this period, the mobilization just like, was like picked up so fast. You know, political scientists talk about mobilization uh, before civil war as, as a bit like, a kind of, like an S. It starts off slowly builds up a big head of steam and rises really, really fast and it sort of tailors off when all the would-be rebels have sort of joined up. And it, that was the moment when uh, when everything really started going south for Ukraine after Odessa because Russia had given them the psychological reason to to fight. Some of this actually does go back to World War II. That, I mean, the propaganda does. That even though Ukraine was actually probably more people died in Ukraine than anywhere else at the hands of the Nazis, they were able to form a Ukrainian Nazi brigade, uh, if I remember right. And people are still, they still have that narrative in their heads, the Russians do anyway. Whether or not it's a false narrative, and, and clearly it seems to largely be false, it's definitely very useful for propaganda. Yeah, I mean, indeed, it's Unfortunately, it, there's always an element of truth in this stuff. And um, there are as many of the pro-Russian activists I met, you know, would, would tell me that, you know, there's a video you can find on YouTube of um, people in Lvov dressed up as SS uh, officers going, foyer, foyer, as they're um, reburying uh, SS soldiers. Th- th- this kind of stuff, I mean, of course, these, these guys are minority, uh, but they are... 
inflated to so it becomes in people's minds that this is the entirety of the enemy they're fighting and in essence it becomes a bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy because people start talking about media wars identities get polarized and more and more people become uh, uh, radicalized uh, on, on both sides so you saw the rise of um, the IDAR battalion the Donbass battalion um, so some of which uh, had openly neo-Nazi people inside them and this to sort of um, in any society you have these kind of people and the media really brought them to the fore. Yeah, we've talked about the, the early days of it. Um, I think, though, I mean, certainly outside Russia, very few people believe that Russian forces were never involved, certainly when it came to bigger battles later in the east of Ukraine. And I know you were based in Donetsk, but there was a lot you, you saw, a lot you heard, a lot of people you talked to. How, if you can answer this, how great an involvement do you think from what you saw and heard was there from the Russian military? And uh, do you think that there, again, that seems to be the great shadow hanging over the Ukrainian forces there, that they are worried if they push too hard, there would just be an outright invasion. Is that Was that a realistic prospect as well, do you feel? Okay, so on May the 16th, I think, I was kind of, well, I wouldn't say kidnapped, but I, I was sort of held by a, um, a militia commander who fought for the Nets People's Republic. And after he released me, we were um, talking about what the uh, scale of the Russian involvement was. And he was saying, look, the Russians have provided, uh, there, there was a guy that came over. He was saying that, that uh, we're all going to be involved in a project called Project Retribution. Uh, where we're going to go all the way to Lvov. And the idea is, is that the Ukrainian army is going to be shelling civilians the whole way because they're so incompetent, which will just radicalise the population and will just ride that wave of radicalization due to civilian casualties all the way to Kiev and, and beyond. I think that was um, a fantasy spun to uh, get people like him involved. And But he was saying that there were weapons and training that was going on uh, in this base that was just uh, near Lugansk, uh, on, right on the border. Um, and that was uh, Russians who were training them and uh, R- Russian weaponry coming over. Uh, I was actually, I got permission, and Mo- Moskovoy, by the way, was in that base. I, I got permission to go to that base. On the very day I was going to go, the, um, the Ukrainian Air Force uh, bombed it. So, uh, I, I might, well, and uh, this militia commander I was with, he was injured in that raid. So I was kind of lucky I didn't go. The, the, the point being that mid-May, the, the Russians had already set up some training uh, centre. There was an active moving of weaponry uh, across the border. Now, whether this was the Russian army that was directly doing this, whether this was Russian volunteers, you know, I, I don't really know, but for sure it can't. You know, it must have had the bless the, the blessing of uh, of the Russian border guards or, or elements in the Russian forces for that to happen at a, at a minimum. So, I mean, that that's like uh, two years ago, right? This kind of trickling in of weaponry that that, came, that was coming in at that time really sort of uh, was important in the sense that it started giving uh, people guns because there weren't many guns that people had. Uh, in Donetsk at the time. And it was also at this time when Russian volunteers started coming over. And really, they, they were Russian volunteers. Uh, I know a lot talked about the, the Russian army, but all, all the guys I met were, were volunteers. Whether they were paid for by the Russian government, it's it's you know, not, not clear. But they, 
the, the Russian army was important, I think, as later on when it looked like several times that the Donetsk People's Republic was losing because the Ukrainians were, were much stronger than they anticipated. And so the Russian army came in to save the day at least uh, several times. And that's what really why it, the thing was a stalemate, because the Donetsk People's Republic was never allowed to really grow beyond its initial sort of borders. And yeah, it just became trench warfare. Can we talk just a little bit about the situation now? Who controls Donetsk? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, in my opinion, you've got people like Pushilin, Zakharchenko, and so on. They, they notionally control Donetsk, but really the, the true masters are the Russians. For instance, my character in the film, Boris Litvinov, who is the head of the Communist Party, was uh, kind of threatened by Alexander Borodai, who was the Prime Minister of um, Donetsk People's Republic, uh, and he, he's a Russian consultant, right, from Moscow. So he basically said, look, this is a recorded phone call, you can sort of listen to it on the internet, it's quite entertaining. He said, look, um, Boris, don't run the Communist Party, stop all your activities, you know, because I've got to know that you're on our side. And Boris was kind of like tried, tried to bluff Borodai by saying, you know, like, people are going to have another revolution, I'm I am barely holding them back from the barricades. And, uh, well, this was, this was kind of like a bullshitting from Boris's part because I turned up to a couple of his um, sort of like little rallies where he was trying to get communists involved to try to put in some kind of... Uh, br bring the, uh, the government of the next People's Republic back to its sort of working-class origins. And kind of nobody really turned up apart from a, a few old women. And then Boris was then pushed out of the uh, local elections. So... There seems to be a lot of, uh, of evidence that Russia is really pulling the strings here, using uh, push, people like Pushilin as puppets. And insiders that I met with in Donetsk People's Republic were saying that the way it works is Russia provides the military guarantee. Also, the economy is also completely dependent on Russian aid. So Russian can always withhold the aid. And that will, that will mean there's a civil unrest inside the republics. This is their sort of lever over them. Plus also because they allow the, the officials to skim off some of that aid, that's a way for keeping them sweet. So, yeah, I mean, R R Russia controls it through mechanisms like that. It's also sort of taking over the military structures as well. I know that your film was very much focused on the sort of the, the personalities, the sort of the, the human side of the revolution but i mean i think that's you know that all revolutions are actually in at the end of the day not made up of sort of faceless forces they're made up of people aren't they so that's that's actually very a unique viewpoint yeah yeah and that, that's really something i wanted to get across because when you watch the film it's not like you really learn that much about ukraine and um, geopolitics but i think you do learn a lot about what it's like to be in a revolution the kind of people that turn up the kind of forces that drive it and the sort of ultimate destiny of, of revolutionaries. Like, I think uh, was it Camus once said that every revolutionary is destined to be either a heretic or an oppressor. So that certainly was the case. <laughs> <laughs> and I just was so struck by how very Russian it looked. You know, just the way everyone was dressed, the casual profanity you know i mean it's just such a interesting looking group uh, i mean they look i guess like what they are they look like people who came out of factories or mines or you know i just thought it was fascinating this there really is a there really is a civilizational difference between the type of people 
uh, in Donbass that are for uh, the Soviet Union, for Russia, that, because they reject, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of people out of time, right? They, they, they reject the way that the Ukraine is trying to, the hipsters and, and uh, the, uh, in, um, in Kiev and the Maidan, all people who want no corruption uh, and so on, because they, they, it's, it's a completely different kind of people, really. Uh, all, all this kind of stuff about gay Europa um, and, and that thing, it's just, it's just a sort of an expression of the fact that they really consider themselves a different kind of people. And this was really what the Kremlin were tapping into, uh, that kind of um, dissatisfaction and anger. Russia helped a lot by providing uh, key military and logistical support and ideological support and so on. But they gave voice to grievances that were already there. And one mustn't forget that Ukraine deserves a significant amount of blame in this whole crisis for basically failing to deal with these kind of deep-set deep set grievances. That's why you'll find now that there's a lot of public support still for the rebel movement, even though they know that they were taken over, they were, in many ways they were fooled and so on. They're still proud that they stood up for, you know, for, I guess, I mean, it's, it sounds a bit pathetic, but for their dignity, you know. Uh, these were things that Ukraine hadn't addressed and it, it dealt, you know, it, it sort of paid the price really in the kind of, you know, in the sort of anarchy of uh, geopolitics for that. And it's also, it's very logical. I mean, it seems to fit the facts. So it's hard to, you know, if you listen to it from the outside and, I mean, just an American point of view, I mean, I couldn't be further from the events. You know, it's hard to defend, right? I mean, uh, yes, they are getting screwed. But, you know, maybe uh, maybe it doesn't help to do what they're doing. But you know what? This, this, is, this is very, very philosophically interesting because if you don't stand up and fight against these big forces, right? Because, you know, it's a cap capitalism is, is about conflict, right? If you don't fight, then you don't get anywhere. But they, they had tried. It's not as if it's the first time that people in, in Ukraine had sort of tried to fight these big forces of corruption and so on. Uh, each time they'd done that, they'd been screwed over. I remember going to Donetsk about five years ago and doing a story on um, kidney transplants. P pe people were selling their kidneys in Donetsk because the, the corrupt policemen had, um, were, were framing their relatives and threatening to not let them be in school, go to university and so on. And so they were having to sell their kidneys to raise the cash to, to bribe the police. This is, if you don't control this kind of stuff, then people will seek uh, more violent forms of, of getting what they want. And they'll obviously get manipulated uh, along the way. This is no different from what Trump is doing. And where, whether you blame Trump as the baddie, who, who is responsible for that, for, for what's happening in Russia? Yeah, Trump is, there'll always be somebody like Hitler or Trump or somebody who will capitalize in on this, uh, this grievance. But... Ultimately, you've also got to blame the people and the system that let it get to that state as well. And when you ignore that, when you just pin the blame on Russia or Trump or whatever, you are doing a massive disservice to these people because they will, it's not like they're going to not be pissed off. They're going to carry on being pissed off. And at one point they will rebel, whether that's morally right or wrong to rebel. You know what? I'm kind of feeling as though if you ignore people, then they have a moral right to rebel because they're literally... You know, society has got to be fair. I think uh, we'll have to end it there, but thank you so much for joining us. And it's fascinating to find out exactly how this came about. 
I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of War College. While I have your attention, I wanted to let you know about an app for iOS called White House Run. It's the other big project I've been working on this year. It lets you run for president against Reuters Ipsos polling data. You get asked a series of questions, and depending on how you match up with Republicans or Democrats in the primary, you'll get a score of your electability. Download it today, and I'd love to get your feedback. Thanks so much. Next time on War College. So the FBI's counterterrorism game has a full title of Don't Be a Puppet, Pull Back the Curtain on Violent Extremism. And it's been under fire for getting the psychological processes of developing extremism wrong. 